0: somebody who's living life your own way, don't. Don't keep doing that. Decide, make a conscious choice to turn and live your life in God's direction and in God's way. Let go of your pride, let go of your greed, let go of your fear, let go of all of those things that keep you from the Lord and instead relinquish yourself to God. You don't have to be wise, you don't have to be among the elite, You can be a fool. This highway is wide enough and it's got big tall walls so you won't be able to get lost. But you've got to submit yourself to God's cleansing. Well, we are, we are in Matthew chapter 11 today. Um, if you want to open up to Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. Um, and today, as you've heard several times, today is kind of the, the Sunday of joy. It's the pink candle or the rose candle. Um, so obviously, we're going to read about John the Baptist in prison. Uh, as <laughs> um But it it is this sort of moment in the middle of Lent where where we take a minute to kind of catch our breath. Uh, You may have noticed the psalm this morning was not a psalm, uh, but was actually Mary's song uh, that just through the inspiration of the Spirit comes exploding out of her mouth as she meets with her cousin Elizabeth. You know, the moment I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb, John the Baptist, jumped and leaped. At your coming. And so here, you know what, three some decades later, we get this another image of the meeting and the news that goes back and forth between the two, John and Jesus. And here's what it says. Now, when John had heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Let's pray. Lord God, in gratitude and joy, we come before you knowing and expecting the soon coming of your Son. We expect His coming in the manger. We look forward to His coming in this day and age, even now, Lord, we cry out with the writers of the scriptures, Maranatha, Lord, come soon. Amen. Well, one of the largest uh, national parks, I think outside of Alaska, it's the largest national park in the country, is Death Valley, out in kind of southeast California, the California side of Nevada. Um, So I asked Dave to pull up some pictures um, and he did this, he kind of did this on the spot, so I appreciate him doing this. Those, these are pictures of Death Valley. It's, it's really massive, it's like millions and millions of acres um, of, of just the most barren landscape you can imagine. Um, it's got, I was trying to count in my head, it's got at least four different mountain ranges in it, so it's not just like big sand dunes, although there are those. Um, I've been sledding on them. <laughs> you go out really early in the morning, we, we left our house at like 3 a.m., and, and if you get out before the sun rises, you can actually, there's these dunes that you can sled down. They're, they're a lot of fun. You have to climb back up them, but it's a lot of fun going down. Um, mountain ranges, there's places where, it's, there's one spot, uh, bad water, where it's 262 feet below sea level, right? So below the level of the sea, you're, you're hundreds of feet below that, and then immediately up from that part of the valley, it goes up to over 11,000, who's that? I don't know that late, she's a little leggy for church this morning, Dave. Uh, Immediately up from there, um, you've got a mountain that's over 11,000 feet. I mean, it's just like this amazing, remarkable place. And if you look at some of these pictures, you can tell that there's been water in those places, right? Even though this is the spot in the United States, in the whole United States, it gets the least amount of water of any place. It's one of the driest places in the world. But you can tell everywhere you look, you can see the mark of water. Dry lake beds, right? Things don't just get big and flat and soft like that, right? You can see canyons that have been carved by these flash floods. I've walked through them and even camped in them. Canyons that, that go up, you know, 50 feet on either side, but they're just this, they're, it's like pure marble and rock, Right? It's beautiful, beautiful places. As you're walking up some of these canyons, you have to climb up and over or down these waterfalls, just spots where you can tell water has been. The, uh, the, the valley gets its name. That's good. Thank you. Um, the valley gets its name from a group of settlers, of pioneers who are out looking for mining claims, and they were coming sort of down south through the Las Vegas area, and they decided they are going to take this shortcut, not knowing what was there but they're pioneers, and so they take off. They head west directly. Instead of going south and around, around the southern tip of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, they head straight west, and and they get down into this valley. The hottest temperature ever recorded in the world was here in this valley, well over 120 degrees in the shade. Um, And, I mean, it's, it's serious. And so as they're walking through this valley, they... They realize their, their lives are in their, they're, they're coming up to the edge of things. They make it all the way across the main valley. They get up um, on the west side of the valley, and, and there's yet another mountain range for them to go over, and they just cannot do it. Um, they sort of huddle up um, in the shade. One of their party decided to take off. He thought, maybe I can get to safety. Um, the story goes... If you kind of mark out how he traveled. He moved more than a marathon a day, right? So over 26 miles a day. He starved. He had to eat his own boots. He was dehydrated. It was both freezing and boiling. I mean, it's just like this unbelievable, unbelievable story of survival that this guy made. it, And the people who left behind did not. It is not an easy place to be, and yet, and yet, sometimes in Death Valley, because it's so low, right, 262 feet below sea level, if it rains anywhere, that water ends up in Death Valley. It can rain 50, 60, 100 miles away, and through this series of canyons, and valleys and riverbeds, that water will actually gush into the valley. You get these flash floods where there's no rain anywhere near you, but all of a sudden it's just you're in this like thundering, powerful rush of water. And so in the winter time, when it's raining far away, and that water rushes down into the valley, and if you ever watch, you remember the Planet Earth like nature series. Isn't it? In that, in the first season of that, there's actually a there's a there's a scene in Death Valley, where these locusts, some water rushes into the valley, and all of a sudden these locusts kind of bloom. It's like a once every twenty five year kind of bloom, and and it'll be. This place that you're used to just being total death and desolation and nothing can really survive here. All of a sudden there's wildflowers everywhere you can see because they put out these seeds and these seeds have been waiting under the ground for 7, 8, 10, 15 years to get enough water to be able to come alive. Or locusts or insects that do the same thing. They lay their eggs and their eggs just sort of wait there under the ground and then all of a sudden when these blooms happen, here they come. And I don't know how... They know how to do this, <laughs> right? I have no idea how they plan this. If they've got little bug calendars that they're looking through, going, okay, I think it's time. I think this is our year. But they do, the whole valley, the whole place comes alive. It's carpeted in color. It'll just be pinks and yellows and purples just for miles and miles. of photographers come from all over the place to photograph to take picture of of this wilderness that blooms. It's just like the blooming of the desert that Isaiah looks forward to in Isaiah 35. You need to know, if you're going to understand Scripture, you need to know a couple really big historical moments. One of the ones that you really need to know about (laughs) is that Jerusalem fell, that all of Israel was wiped out. And that the, the wealthy and the powerful and the semi-wealthy and the semi-powerful, everybody who had anything to offer was taken off to Babylon. They were put in carts and they were forced to walk and they were moved across the desert from where they lived in Israel across the desert to the city of Babylon, which today is around like where Baghdad is in Iraq. And Babylon was on the banks of two rivers. It's a good thing to be a city on the bank of one river, but if you can be the city on the bank of two rivers, that's a really good thing. And so it was this huge city, and they moved all of the Jews in there from Jerusalem. And for years, for 70 years, they sat and they waited. And Israel or Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 35 is, is from this time. This time right before Jerusalem was wiped out, and he's looking forward, he's he's reading the situation, and because God has given him the gift of being able to see what is going on, he says, this is not going to end good for us, but God will not abandon us. And a day will come when a highway will come up through that same wilderness. God's not going to leave us in our exile. He's not going to leave us in Babylon. He's not going to leave us where we were. But God will find a way to bring us back, to bring us through. Now, if you're an Israelite sitting in Babylon, sitting in that heat, sitting in that desolation, sitting in a city where you're surrounded by other gods, you're surrounded by people who want to say, okay, your God was nice, Yahweh was okay, I'm glad he brought you out of slavery in Egypt, but look where you are now. And now your whole life has been just collapsed into the desert of Babylon. And there's no way to get back across. I mean, before you, you came across as these kind of prisoners of war, somebody had to force you to walk across that wilderness, and now you're going to strike out on your own and try to cross that desert by yourself? How could it be? How could these people ever hope to cross the hundreds of miles of desert between Babylon and Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to reestablish the nation, to reestablish their life in the place where God had promised them? The future does not look good for them. But Isaiah's word, Isaiah's promise, is that there will be a way back that the exile is not the end of the story. He sees the truth that God is going to bring a rush of water and blooming to this barren land, this barren situation that they're in. So these are his words. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals. Where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. (laughs) This land that was once so foreboding that just had like a skull and crossbones hanging above that part of the map. This land, water's gonna rush in, and life is gonna come out, and the wilderness, the wildflowers are gonna come forth. And there's going to be animals running and jumping and leaping through that part of the world. And so the people of Israel, as they come back to Jerusalem, are not going to be, it's not going to be this long slog through the desert. No, they're going to be able to fish their way and hunt their way all the way back to their homeland. They're not going to have to pack all of their food and eat locusts along the way. God will make a way. And this highway, because That's actually what Isaiah sees. Isaiah sees a road that comes up through a trackless wasteland. A road that's raised up through that marshland and allows the people to make it back. It allows them even to hurry back to the land of promise. It's a highway that will be called the way of holiness. So it's going to be big and wide. And it's going to be obvious to everyone who travels on it. Some of the promises about this highway is that it's going to go from Death Valley with a group of settlers huddled up under the unforgiving heat to a highway for the people of God who splash their way home. It goes from this kind of cross-country slog where you're not quite sure if it's ever going to end. You're just sitting in the back of the car, (laughs) ready, ready to just give yourself up. But your dad says, we've got to keep driving. Goes from that kind of trip all of a sudden to the kind of trip that takes you to grandma's house and the trunk is full of presents and you just can't wait to be in that place because you know when you're there, the cookies are going to be ready and everything's going to be exactly as you've been looking forward to it all year long. A couple things about this way. The first it says that the unclean shall not pass over it. Those who are unbaptized in the water of the Lord. Those who have not been initiated into his way, they don't, they don't get a pass onto this road. The, this way of holiness that brings you home, it doesn't just let anybody on because now that way is safe, right? So so everybody who's on this way, everybody who submits themselves to the way of holiness says, I want to live my life God's way. All of a sudden, now when we're walking down this highway, we don't have to worry about bandits. We don't have to worry about people jumping out of the rocks and taking stuff from us. We don't have to worry about tricky hotel owners who are trying to scam us. But God has made it safe. And Isaiah says there's not going to be any lions or or ravenous beasts on this highway. But it's going to be a safe way home. He also says, and this is maybe my favorite, that even fools will not get lost. It's going to be so obvious that even the person who can't get from home to the grocery store without their GPS being turned on, is going to be able to make it home. It's going to be so clear that even those of us who are constantly doing the thing where we fly by the exit we're supposed to be on and we have to go on the next exit and we have to like get off and then turn around and come back and go one more exit pass. And, I mean, those of us who are constantly in that, like, yeah, but I'm not exactly where I'm supposed to, the highway will be clear even to those of us who do that kind of thing. Isaiah promises that you won't need to be strong. You won't need to be wise. You won't need to be among the powerful of this world. You only need to be baptized and cleansed. You only need to submit yourself to God, to His love, to His word. I want you to think about your own journey home. Because there's a literal reading of this text, it's kind of historical. Right, We can look back to the 600s B.C., the 6th century B.C. We could say, well, yes, Israel was off in Babylon, and then they wanted to be in Jerusalem, and Isaiah had this promise of what it was going to look like. There's also kind of a spiritual reading of this that you and I have been in a far country. We've spent parts of our lives far from the Lord. We've spent... Parts of our lives rejecting what God would say about us and choosing instead to live our lives our own way. Some of us even do that as we come to church week after week. Some of us even do that as we're involved in church. Some of us even do that as you are an ordained minister of the gospel. (laughs) It happens. But you still try to live your life your own way. And you find yourself in Babylon. You find yourself exiled. But Isaiah preaches John's sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what John the Baptist had to say. Repent. Turn. If you're somebody who's living life your own way, don't. (laughs) Don't keep doing that. Decide, make a conscious choice to turn and live your life in God's direction and in God's way. Let go of your pride, let go of your greed, let go of your fear, let go of all of those things that keep you from the Lord, and instead relinquish yourself to God. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be among the elite. You can be a fool. This highway is wide enough and it's got big tall walls, so you won't be able to get lost. But you've got to submit yourself to God's cleansing. when we do that, places and people that we once considered dry and full of death, well, they bloom and they sprout. Wildflowers come out of corners of our lives that we never expected wildflowers to come out of. Where we thought we would be forced to kind of make our way through like we're wandering through the wilderness, where we thought we'd have to huddle up and just die next to a mountain where it's 120 degrees in the shade. In that place, God is still bringing and sustaining life. I remember when I was in college, I was utterly convinced. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I was not going to be a pastor. <laughs> I know what I'm not doing with my life. So I ended up living and working at a church, <laughs> as one does. And it wasn't the kind of church that I ever would have expected wildflowers or to be a a. a A place that bloomed. It was a tough place. It was a place that was full of a lot of tough people. And it was a tough neighborhood. It was a neighborhood of people that didn't look like me. A lot of them didn't speak the same language that I spoke. They definitely didn't have the same life experiences that I had. And yet, in that place, I found a church, I found a desert that bloomed, a place where a house that had been used for drug activity and prostitution and gang activity, that house had gotten bought and transformed and turned inside out and redeemed, so that it became a place where young men sought the call of God on their lives. It was a church where the homeless and gang members were welcomed and called into a different kind of life. And if you walked in there on a Sunday morning, you go, these are the 184 things that they're doing wrong. They don't have greeters. The bulletin is just a mess. The lights only work half the time. The, the words are never right on the screen, the musicians are kind of off. I mean it was like everything about that church was wrong. Except that they knew Isaiah 35. They knew what it was to be a desert that was blooming. They knew what it was to be a place that had no hope of existence except God kept it going. They knew what it was to be a place that did nothing right in the eyes of the world, but kept themselves open to the Spirit. It was in that place that God really called me to the ministry. Because i got to tell you, this is not worth doing if God's not in it. Life in the church, as a pastor or a member, is not worth doing unless God is the one sustaining and making it happen. And to tell you the truth, I see that a lot here at Cordova course, I I always want to see it happen more, right? (laughs) I always in some sense kind of have these places where I'm going, yeah, but God can make this bloom and God can make that happen. But the truth is, is that we see this sort of desert blooming here. We see people coming onto this property and being loved, not because they deserve to be loved, but because by their very existence, they remind us of the goodness of God. We see people showing up to serve, making food, (laughs) distributing it, doing more than they probably should from an earthly perspective when you look at the amount of time or energy that they have. But continuing to lay their lives down. Because as we lay our lives down, God makes that life bloom. we aren't the only ones waiting for the desert to bloom. You know, if you look at the brokenness of the world, if you look at the ugliness of people's relationships with each other, you look at that complicated mess of exploitation that we see happening in the world, you just want to cry with the New Testament writers, Maranatha, Lord, come soon. Don't let this continue. And John the Baptist, he thought the same thing. You know, he was locked up in prison. Um, we kind of do prison differently in our world. We will actually sentence people to prison, right? You got 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is. You're just, and that's just where you live for that duration of time, and you know when the end is coming. That's not how it was the prison in the ancient world, right? They didn't have massive complexes of people. So John is in, he's not really in prison. It's more like jail, kind of this holding cell kind of place. It's like he's locked up, but he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. So it's worse because he can't really prepare for what's about to come. Every day he wakes up going, what happens today? Do I get released? Do I get killed? I don't know. Right? He's in this sort of in-between, and oftentimes our lives are just like that. We're in this in-between of waiting for Christ to come, but also experiencing the difficulty of the present and asking that question, how do we actually live joyfully when we're in this sort of in-between? John was kept in limbo. See, he had spoken up about Herod, the... No. Oh, man. Was it Pilate? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm all confused. Cody, who was it? Who did he speak up against? Herod, okay, good, thank you. (laughs) Herod, uh, sleeping with his brother's wife, and um, John said, that's not a good idea. (laughs) You're going to be the king of Israel. It's not really a good idea if you're anybody. Uh, It just makes family reunions a little awkward. And... um, He spoke up about it, that leaders actually ought to have some moral fiber to them, that they don't just get to do whatever they want to do because they're leaders and they can get away with it. right? So he speaks up about it, and Herod takes him and throws him in prison, throws him in jail. But Herod also, weirdly, kind of likes John the Baptist. He likes hearing him speak, he likes what he has to say, so he would actually go listen to him. He'd go hang out with John and, you know, what do you want to say to me today, John? But he's also afraid to actually... Do what John says. Herod is really waiting for somebody else to make the decision for him about what to do with John. Do I keep him around? Do I lop off his head? Do I set him free? I don't know. John's in this state of in-between, and he's forced to look for more. He knows that the message he has preached is true, but as he sits and listens to what's going on with Jesus, it doesn't... He's kind of waiting for Jesus to really do all the stuff that he wants him to do. Do all the really Messiah-ish kind of stuff. You know, change some things. Don't just get yourself in trouble. Well, you remember from a week or two ago, that image of looking through a telescope and seeing two things that are really far away, And they look like one object, but when you get up close, they're actually miles and miles apart. And and that's kind of what happens here with John. He's looking off into the distance, and he sees the coming of the Messiah and the sort of culmination of all things. And all the Old Testament prophets did this. They they took those, those two things, that the Messiah would come, and that God would make himself all in all. That God would throw off all the powers of sin and death in the world, which is what we're all looking forward to. And they saw those two things as one thing. And so here we are in 2019, almost 2,000 years later, living in between, living in between the coming of the Messiah and Jesus Christ and the culmination of all things when God will make Himself all in all. We're we're still in that in-between. And so John asks him, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus' response is really wonderful. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me." He's saying that in me that all the power, all the authority, everything that sin and death, everything that the enemy has over this world is broken. Blindness, lameness, leprosy, deafness, death, poverty. These are all things that have worked to keep people from God. On this way of holiness, all those evidences of sin's Power, go by the wayside. And so Jesus' ministry functions as this invitation into the new world that he's bringing. And I wonder, how do we come into that new world? How do we enter in? How do, how do you and I here in Sacramento and Rancho Cordova how do we live that kind of life some of us are lame <laughs> some of us are blind some of us are deaf and we feel the influence of that weakness over our lives so how do we get onto that highway of holiness where that the power of sin and death has been banished and instead we're living in the joy I think think it's important for us to to do something here is to distinguish between work and play. And here's what I mean. The the enemy often convinces us, or we are often convinced, that everything that is good in this world is pretty hard to do, that it takes a lot of effort, that it's work, right? Um, And the way I'm using this, here's what I mean, is that Work is things that you do with a kind of seriousness and anxiety about them, right? And play are things that you do that you do them for their own sake, right? So if, when I go to work, I don't, I don't really work a real job because I'm here doing this kind of thing, and honestly, this is just fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to be a pastor. Um, it's a lot of joy to be a pastor. There's a lot of hard things, but it's good to do hard things that matter, right? And I have this deep sense that when I'm doing hard things in the church that it's important that it matters, right? But then there's, I've worked jobs where I'm not convinced that anything I'm doing actually matters. (laughs) You're just kind of like showing up. Um, You're scraping out weeds. I worked landscaping when I was in college and it's like, you're kind of scraping out weeds. Why? So you can go back and scrape them again next week. Like you just are in this continual cycle And so you can kind of have this seriousness and this anxiety about it where, yes, I have to show up, but I don't want to be there, and it doesn't actually add anything to my life. I'm just doing it because i got to get the paycheck. And so here's my question. If your boss called you and told you that you would not be getting paid for the rest of 2020, would you show up to work? If you would not, then it's work. If you would, then it's play, Okay? (laughs) Emmaus knows about play. He wakes me up at 6 a.m. to tell me, Daddy, come look at my circle. I'm like, your circle? What are you talking about? And he's taken all the little figures from the Advent calendar and arranged them in a circle. He's real proud of this. <laughs> and no one has to tell him to do that, right? Emmanuel knows about play. He gets me up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday to go play basketball. And he lets me be good for like two games. He lets me get a few rebounds. He lets me get a few layups. And then all of a sudden, he decides, that's enough. (laughs) And he shuts me down. (laughs) And why are those things good? Why is it good to play with little Advent figurines and to go play basketball or to go skiing or to just spend time doing something silly with your family? Why are those things good? They exist for their own sake. right? You don't do them because somebody's paying you to do them. Oftentimes, we're the one paying. We do them because we are created to engage in that kind of activity we are created to do things that cause us to come alive in a fresh way mm-hmm. i'm convinced that's what worship is too we don't show up and worship here on sunday morning you don't worship in your homes cuz you cuz there's some functional end to it You do it because it's good to do, because God has made you for this, right? And that's very different from showing up to something that's going to return to you. You do it because it in itself is valuable, is important. And so we give and we share and we sing and we pray and we fellowship and we serve. But we do that out of the fullness of, of God's grace in our lives, out of the overflow of what we experience as we come to worship. And I really hope that as Christians and as the church, we begin to see that we're a part of this kind of community of players, this community where we we come to play with the good things that God has given us. And we do it joyfully. We do it thankfully. Because this world that God has created is wonderful, and it's wonderful that God has put us in this world, and so we are able to sort of flow out with this joy. I mean, I see it in the paintings. These paintings that are up on the sides, are, they're not done by professional artists who are paid hundreds of dollars. Liz, have you been paid hundreds of dollars? Oh, okay. <laughs> but they're done by our painting class that gathers every other Monday to paint. Why? because it's just this expression of the creativity that God has placed inside each one of us. Not expertise, but participation and joy. And we do the same thing when we sing. We don't always sing or play expertly. We don't always serve. We don't always do everything we do here as though we're professionals. But we do it because God has poured His grace out into our lives. We do it because we are, like John said, baptized by the Spirit and by the fire. that God pours himself out to us through his Holy Spirit, and as he does so, he purifies our activity. He pushes us forward by the fire of the Spirit. You know, I I cannot force you. Maybe I wish I could. I don't know. But I can't force you to get really, really honest with yourself. I can't force you to really tell the truth about why you do the things that you do. I can provide some insight. I can hopefully open up the scriptures here and there. I can hopefully explain a little bit of the way that God sees the world and the way that God sees you. But inside every one of us, there's part of us that's still waiting. There's part of us that's still in prison that is hopeful for new life, but still incarcerated by the powers of the world. And that part of us, whether it's public or private, is asking John's question. Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we we be waiting for someone else? Should I spend my efforts somewhere else? Should I look for something else to save me? Should I keep my options open? But unlike John in prison, we have better information. Jesus says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. I think what he means is that John sees a lot of things clearly, but John has not yet seen the cross. John has not yet and will not in his life see the empty tomb. But you and I, we have the truth of the cross. We have the truth of the resurrection, which is the very core of God's revelation to us, of God's willingness to say, I'm not going to leave you in your sin. I'm not going to leave you in your prison. I'm not going to leave you in your waiting, but I'm actually going to come to you so that you might be freed from all of that. I'm going to free you from sin and death. I'm going to open up the church as a place where you can live your life and playfully explore what it is to be in this new creation that I'm bringing into the world. I'm going to make clear to you that I was made part of my own creation in Mary's womb. And that on the cross, I absorbed the enemy's blow and transformed it into final victory. No one has ever like Jesus done something like that. So this morning, you're invited to come out of your waiting, come out of your desert, come into the abundant, blossoming way of Christ that is done for its own sake. You're invited to come out of the deserts that fill your life and instead come into that wildflower strewn valley. One of those barren places, the one that yields unending eternal life is the death of our Lord. I want to invite you to come to the table this morning. I know it may look like a desert. It may look like mere bread, a mere cup. I want to invite you to come to the table this morning knowing that in this very gift, God has brought about the richest blessings of His grace. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you and your goodness have not left us alone. You have not allowed us to be stuck in our sin. But you have entered into the desert. And in that desert, Lord, you have conquered and defeated everything that is threatened to conquer and defeat us. So enable us, Lord, to joyfully, to thankfully, with, with gratitude and with hope, to look forward to the day when you will come fully, but also to know, Lord, that you desire to be made manifest in our lives here today, even now. Help us to look for the opportunities to do that, to reach out to those who are not like us, to open ourselves up to those who are in need. As we do that, Lord, to recognize that you've done the same for us. We lay ourselves down, Lord, because we know that if we are to take up our own lives, we are most of men, most